Hello and welcome to episode 202 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter slash X, Instagram and or Facebook. In this episode, we hear from Spiros Sophos, visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Centre of the London School of Economics and the author of Turkish Politics and the People, Mass Mobilisation and Populism, published by Edinburgh University Press. The book delves deeply into the many transformations of the term the people in political discourse from the late Ottoman era to the early years of the Republic of Turkey after 1923 to present-day Turkish politics under President Erdogan. Our conversation looks at the nuances and ambiguities of this term and how various political projects, secular and religious, left and right, have operationalized it for often very different ends. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listener support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we have given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It's extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks. And I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre orders, or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Spiros Sophos. I started by asking what triggered him to start researching more deeply into the term the people and the ambiguity surrounding it. I have been studying Turkey for about 20 years now, and uh, I had uh, initially started working on the notion of the nation, so Millet and Vatan as well. And I was uh, trying to figure out why these concepts are so resilient in uh, the Turkish political vocabulary, I would say. 
These terms are often interchangeable with the term Hulk. And with the ascendance of the uh, Justice and Development Party and Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his particular style of politics and uh, discourse, I realized that it was probably an urgent task to try to analyze elements of his discourse, especially the elements where he talks about the people, about the downtrodden, about the excluded, and how these are defined by members of his constituency. As I was doing that, I realized that there is a tradition in Turkish politics of evoking all these terms, nation and people, interchangeably, almost interchangeably. And then I decided I it was an interesting idea to start disentangling them and trying to see continuities and ruptures in the use of these terms and, of course, in, the, in their operationalization. Another element was my uh, long-standing interest, interest in populism. Uh, I've been studying populism in a variety of contexts, and therefore I thought that these two interests converged. Hence, the book came about. So we're going to talk a bit later on about the use by Erdogan and the current ruling circles of this term, as you mentioned there. But you also talk in the book about how the term Hauk was used by the early Republican elites, so by the CHP and Ataturk in the single party era after the declaration of the Turkish Republic in 1923. They had this very interesting interpretation of this term Hauk obviously the CHP, Jumhuriyet Halk Party, which means the Republican People's Party. And it had this particular meaning at that time, which really can only be understood in the Turkish context of that period. It was a way for them to basically distinguish the people as they saw it, or the nation, from what they saw as the corrupt, exploitative Ottoman imperial elites, who were seen as being compromised by foreign and specifically European powers. And obviously, they were the forces that the War of Independence was waged against, not just the occupying European powers, but also their collaborators in the Ottoman imperial elites. And I think this is uh, something that you talk about in the book, and it's a point that's sometimes misunderstood by people, how the rhetoric of those early Republican elites, including Ataturk, didn't actually repudiate the Ottoman Empire or Ottoman history. But when they talked about rejecting Ottomanism, what they meant was basically repudiating the Ottoman elite as this kind of corrupt, immoral or disgraceful circle of elites that was basically guilty of bringing down a great and proud imperial Turkish state as they saw it. So there was a nuance in understanding there that saw Ottomanism as representing this thin elite at the top of Ottoman society that was somehow distinct from the greater tradition of uh, the Ottoman Empire that was still something to be defended. So there was this interesting interpretation that I think sometimes gets lost. And I think your book was a good reminder of that particular interpretation of the word the people by the early Republican elites at the time. Yes, uh, th- thank you for pointing this out. Uh, I think this is uh, one of the elements of the, the book that uh, I wanted to accentuate as much as possible. I would also like to, if I can, bring even some more nuance in this. So, for example, I'm, I'm thinking that what is quite interesting is to see exactly these elements that you identify, this, this kind of negative stance towards an Ottoman corrupt uh, uh, political culture, I would say, 
but at the same time, not an abrupt break with the Ottoman tradition. In any case, the the Turkish uh, state that Republican nationalism wanted to establish was a state that was supposed to salvage as much territory as possible of the Ottoman Empire for the Turkish people. And therefore, it had to, in some ways, posit itself as someone uh, as, as a movement that repudiates Ottomanism of sorts, but at the same time claim some sort of continuity, some sort of right of inheritance. Another interesting point is, I think, the the anti-colonial character that Ataturk and his uh, collaborators evoked quite frequently, and uh, the fact that they wanted a popular state, at least in principle, uh, the principle of Halchilik populism in uh, Republican discourse was very important. What I find quite interesting is that the elites against which they were turning effectively were themselves, because Ataturk and all the major figures of Republican politics, uh, early Republican politics, were effectively part of this elite. And uh, uh, their progenitors, the Committee of Union and Progress, in many ways, were the ones who had influenced them in terms of the shaping of their intellectual outlook and so on. But at the same time, they were the ones that had brought the Ottoman Empire in the war on the side of Germany and Austro-Hungary. And they were the ones that had effectively precipitated the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So there is this this kind of, of complex ambivalence, but also difficulty in discerning what exactly they were against. But I think you you very aptly try to distinguish between an Ottoman tradition and uh, a a corrupt elite, which I think is a fair description of the book. I just wanted to add a little bit more of complexity in that argument. And there's a paradox there as well, isn't there, that isn't just related to the period itself that you mentioned, but also uh, I noticed as I was reading the book that you can actually draw out when you compare that period with today. So you write, at one point, quote, the Republican movement, like the anti-colonial movements that would soon spread throughout the peripheries of Europe's colonial empires, became a theatre of nationalism and populism. The proclamation of the Turkish Republic was thus seen and represented as the moment of the affirmation of the will of the people to pursue a course of self-determination and of the confirmation of its liberation from the Ottoman yoke. The Ottoman rulers, the Republican discourse suggested, had nothing to do with the people of Anatolia. The elites of Istanbul, with their cosmopolitan attitudes and predispositions, were alien to the simple yet authentic culture of the decent folk of Asia Minor. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, this similar discourse is today used, you know, 100 years later, by Erdogan and the ruling Islamist circles to justify basically the opposite political project as a reaction against the early Republican era. You know, they use the same kind of framing of the cosmopolitan elites versus the real people, this classic populist framework, but they're using it in completely the opposite way to justify a completely different political project one century on. Did that paradox also strike you when you were putting together this book? Indeed, I think this is a, this is a, a paradox that I, I mean it appears to be a paradox, uh, but we can see some uh, amazing continuity throughout 100 years of uh, Turkish Republican politics, and especially as you point out, we see something like a full circle 
the, the adoption of this of a very similar discourse to the discourse that Ataturk and his uh, uh, circle were weaving at the time, and the discourse that Erdogan and his team are weaving at, at the moment. As you say, the content may have slightly changed, but the format of the discourse and the categories that they use, like uh, uh, they talk about the culture, the cultured elite uh, that is primarily resident in Istanbul as well. Uh, they talk about all of the elements, uh, you know, the ordinary people, the downtrodden, the, the black Turks, as they say, who have been treated unjustly. More recently, with the Hagia Sophia transformation again into a mosque, he's been talking about the need to establish a sovereignty that was denied to the Turkish people. It is so uncanny that we can see all these themes coming out of the of the textbook in some ways that the early republican elite had developed i think that they both the, both the current elite and the elite of the time have a project of modernization of turkey and uh, of course have a different concept of modernity but uh, they they the, the projects are are projects that are trying to effectively shape turkey as a strong, I would say, and modern nation under the tutelage of a specific elite. It's un uncanny that there are so many similarities. Yes. So Erdogan cultivates this very potent populist narrative of them and us based on this polarization, really, that reinforces the dividing lines. And it's a narrative that sees, sees the people as an innocent whole that's looked down on, as you say, by this small cultured arrogant minority elite serving foreign masters. You talk about that in the book, how Erdogan maps Turkish society in terms of two camps, the majority of hardworking, wholesome native Turkish citizens whose country and republic has been usurped by a small minority of arrogant, cultured, upper-class urbanites with their impeccable Istanbul accents who look down on them, as you say. And obviously this is a really, really simplistic narrative, but it's resonating with a lot of people even though it's obviously self-serving, self-admiring as a narrative, it really does resonate with a lot of people. You know, Erdogan's been basing his political narrative on these dividing lines for, for years, even decades, and it's still a very potent narrative that he sells and that he has a significant number of buyers in society. So clearly this, uh, this narrative, you know, served its purpose in the most recent election as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think that populism in many ways thrive in uh, developing, but also using as a resource polarizing elements in societies. I mean, populism is based on a binary understanding of politics, them versus us. And uh, they are averse to diversity and complexity of society. They don't want to see society as complex. So Erdogan has been a master, I would say, in uh, doing exactly that, do, uh, trying to, first of all, draw on divides in Turkish society that can then be interpreted in terms of a, a long-standing polarization, a long-standing divide between them and us. And at the same time, he has been a master in also creating crises or exploiting crises in ways that would reinforce even more this kind of polarized understanding of Turkish society. I think Ataturk did quite, quite the same. I mean, Erdogan quite often talks about 
the Kurdish brethren, his Kurdish brethren, and he tries to say that uh, uh, we respect uh, their rights and so on, although in practice there is still a state of emergency in uh, the southeast of the country. Ataturk was also uh, selectively talking about diversity when uh, it was essential to solidify a notion of an indivisible people eventually. So the different Muslim peoples would be called with their names, Abkhaz, Circassians, and so on, until they could then be subsumed into the idea of the Muslim Turkish population. So uh, we can see, again, similarities, uh, both in the case of Erdogan and Kemal Ataturk in in some ways, in how they created this kind of divide and polarization in society. But it's not all bad, is it? I mean, we could also give at least one cheer to this notion of the people or even the nation, because it can also be used and it has been used in the past as a crucial appeal for legitimacy and accountability. You write in the book that, quote, appeals to the people have been central in Turkish political discourse, both left and right, secular, nationalist and Islamist. This has been used both as a pretext for legitimizing curtailments of the democratic process and for the perpetration of human rights abuses on the one hand, and also as a means of democratic political mobilization on the other hand. So again, that gets to the fluidity of some of these concepts. Yes, I think I think that populism has uh, these two elements. It is effectively a cry for more democracy, a cry for empowerment. It uh, tries to mobilize this yearning of society for the ability to determine the conditions of their lives and the quality of their lives. But at the same time, it has been used as a means to deny these people the voice, the institutionalized voice that they can have in a democracy. For example, Erdogan has been also casting himself as the person that can interpret and express the will of the people. Uh, Mili Rade, as he calls it, a similar expression was used by Ataturk. And uh, the people generally are considered to be worthy of democracy, but not ready for it in both cases. So Ataturk talked a lot about uh, the infant people, that uh, they had to be taken by the hand and learn how to essentially become citizens in a democracy. Erdogan, in many ways, has also assumed this role of protector of the people and uh, has assumed the role of their voice in, in many ways therefore cancelling in some ways their autonomy as a subject that as a subject that they can that can articulate opinions voices uh, voice and so on another kind of wrinkle that sprung to mind as i was reading the book was how there are these subtle differences of meaning that some people may not grasp about this term hauk and how in some circles it's used as a kind of totalizing thing that everybody has to be part of and is used to either include or exclude individuals or groups from it. But also, I was thinking of the HDP, the, the Kurdish party, which, you know, obviously the name of it is Halklar uh, and Democratic Party, which means like the people's plural Democratic Party. So there's a subtle kind of semantic difference there. And some people may not pick up on it. But almost subconsciously for a lot of listeners or hearers of that term in Turkish, they will understand inherently that that means something very different to the term the people as a kind of national project. It means 
a grouping of, of multiple different peoples coming together to, you know, within one party. And that that triggers its, you know, opponents by using the plural. It's basically that whole notion of there being one people within the national community. I don't know, it just seems like one of those kind of small, subtle semantic differences that may seem a bit trivial on the surface, maybe looking from the outside, but from looking within Turkey, it's uh, really significant. And it, again, reinforces the very, very profound differences of perspective that many different constituencies have within Turkey, within the political arena. Yes, that's, that's indeed an excellent point. And uh, I must say, I, I had been involved in discussions with uh, people that I would say played an important role in establishing the HDP, the Democratic Party of the Peoples. Also, I followed the public debate on how they would translate the term. So I think that what the HDP has done uh, successfully, in contrast to other, I would call them left-wing parties, is that uh, it uh, tried to articulate two elements. It tried to salvage the notion of Hulk from uh, the use, uh, its traditional conventional use, by effectively pluralizing it, but also bringing out a democratic element, the democratic element in it that had been a little bit downplayed, both by the early republic, also by the Turkish left. Uh, Many parties use the word Hulk in their discourse, but they were considering, and and that has been an accusation uh, within the left, of these parties, that they, they, they have been considering the people indivisible and one, and they didn't understand that uh, they needed to talk more in Gramscian terms, possibly, in terms of alliances, of a popular front that uh, respected the diversity of the people. Hedepe did, did something really good in the sense that it tried to rejuvenate, re, re, rekindle the debate about uh, what the notion of the people is. Should we better speak about peoples and uh, also define its left project as a project of dialogue and project of creating shared horizons? And I think this has been its, the major contribution of the party, even if it doesn't continue existing, if it has not managed to command a huge share of the vote, although it has done fairly well. The, 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 the contribution is that it has started a debate that uh, will uh, continue for years to come. Yeah, looking forward in the years ahead, I mean, do you have any observations about you know, where this debate is going? this term, how have there been any subtle shifts in recent years that you've observed that are significant and that were worth commenting on? Has there been any shift semantically in among new generations, for example, or are we just seeing rehashed old debates sort of becoming stale after over two decades of AKP rule? I think we've seen that uh, younger people have been more positively open to the conceptualization of the people as uh, a category that uh, should be used in plural. They have also uh, been practically more uh, open to engaging with others, which is something that is very difficult in Turkish politics, I would say. I also think that uh, we've seen, uh, I will talk about the, the, the recent uh, election campaign uh, of the of the JHP, of the Republican People's Party, which uh, I 
found quite self-contradictory, uh, ambivalent in some ways, because we had at the early stage uh, Kemal Kilicdarulu talking about uh, diversity. He talked about the Kurdish fellow citizens. He urged people to protect them against assaults by the regime. He talked about his Alevi culture. This is this is some sort of embracing of the diversity of Turkish society and using it as a political capital in many ways. Then again, uh, once uh, uh, Kilic Darulu and his team realized that this discourse had not uh, brought the necessary 50%, he turned back to some sort of atavistic nationalism, anti-immigrant rhetoric and so on. But we can see that uh, the seeds are there and they may not bring a 50% of the vote to a political contender, but uh, they are part of the debate nowadays. And a lot of people have, in many ways, normalize them in their discourse and in their practice. And I think this is something very positive that we will see developing slowly uh, as everything. I mean, politics cannot uh, change the world in one day. It's uh, a complex and long process. That was Spyros Sophos. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 202. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. And you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on your social media platforms and follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter or X, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.